Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The COVID-19 pandemic is the most serious challenge to the banking industry in almost a century. Retail banks have had to rethink distribution, support government relief programs, and manage remote workforces, all while trying to meet customer expectations during a period of household-level economic uncertainty. These challenges are only the tip of the iceberg, however, as economic fallout and the redefined structure of the financial services ecosystem are beginning to emerge. It is clear that the new normal in retail banking will be far different than we ever imagined only a few months ago. We are fortunate to be joined today by Richard Hunt, President and CEO of the Consumer Bankers Association. Since his appointment in 2009, Hunt has helped to navigate the banking industry through a period of unprecedented change in a way financial services are delivered, the way they are regulated, the competition faced, and now the struggles of a post-pandemic economy. In this episode, Richard provides these perspectives for the future retail banking during a period of tremendous uncertainty. So welcome to the show, Richard. Over the past 11 years since you took the helm of the CBA, you've seen a lot. The recovery of the financial crisis of 2008, significant changes in banking regulations, an increase in non-traditional competition, change in the way consumers access financial services, and now COVID-19. What do you see as the role of the CBA and your role as leader during this unprecedented period? Yeah, Jim, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your show. I think over the last five weeks, we've had a tremendous value to our CBA membership, helping them navigate through both what is happening in Washington, D.C., through Congress and the administration, and also what is taking place in the banking industry itself. We have convened, I can't even tell you how many committee calls. We have 14 standing committees that previously had been meeting once a month on the phone, twice a year in person, to meeting almost on a daily basis, comparing best practices, uh, and then also having membership calls for the entire membership to compare those notes, but also what is transpiring in Washington. So we're being dual tracking what is happening and really convening the best and the brightest in the banking industry, both banks and members of Congress, Treasury officials, SBA officials as well, to help plot the course for 10 days out. Now, at the very beginning, it was one hour out. Now we're getting to a whopping 10 hours out, and soon we're going to be getting to the next maybe five years out once we get to the other side of the virus. Well, as the virus showed, the best planning in the world doesn't do any good when something hits you like this. I mean, you really end up in a situation. I, I wrote for the financial brand uh, Monday that, you know, it's time to throw out your 2020 strategic plans. The banking industry traditionally has built their strategic plans based on the previous year's plans. It was the same when I was in banking 30 years ago, and it's the same today that we kind of make iterations. But iterations aren't the call of the day right now. A lot of things have changed very quickly. What do you see as the biggest impact of COVID-19 on retail banking, not only the big banks, but the banking industry as a whole? Great question. And I will tell you this, Jim, I've always been a big fan of the Fed-administered stress testing. I don't think it was always as transparent as it could have been. I think some of the formulas they used were a little draconian, but now I am grateful for all of them 
but nobody planned for a total collapse of the economy uh, like we're now seeing with the virus. I've always thought it was good to have the top 17 banks have a good housekeeping seal of approval that was then expanded past the 17, but I've always been a fan of it. Now, to your question, what is the biggest impact? Uh, Consumer confidence when it's all said and done. When will the consumer want to start traveling again? When will the consumer want to go back to work? When are they going to start spending in general? Because that then dictates the health of the banking industry. A consumer must be confident for all businesses, not just banking, to succeed. I think once we get to the other side, you'll see an acceleration of branch transformation. Many of our banks have been trying to reposition. It's the magical word we use in the industry. I just call it flat-out closing of branches. We had some 90,000. I think we're probably at 88,000. But I think you're going to see a mass consolidation over the next couple of years. I think you're going to see, finally, the tipping point of digital transformation. People were now forced to use so their iPhone, if you will, to do their banking. And we've been knowing for years now, you can do 99% of your banking on your iPhone. You just can't get cash out of that iPhone. I've been working on that with Apple, but I, <laughs> I haven't perfected that yet. So I think once we get to the other side, as banks are going to have to cut expenses, those are couple of the ways they're going to do it, plus the ordinary reduction probably in personnel and probably a reduction in travel. You know, it's interesting. You you said it really well. I've mentioned others. They say, you know, when are you going to go back to traveling? I said, well, honestly, I'm sure the plane industry will be or the airline industry is going to certainly be ready before I am. And my desire to travel is probably not going to be hit as much as my desire to get in front of 3000 people. There's a different staging within your mind on what you're comfortable with. And every single person is going to be different. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned it very well about the digital transformation of the banking industry. You know, we've seen and it became more apparent during some of the things that have happened over the last two months that some financial institutions were faking it rather than really being digitally transformed. We we do research for the digital banking report and we found that 70% of financial institutions said they had digital account opening. And then a couple of questions later, we'd say, does the consumer have to come into the branch? And about 70% of those said yes. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, that's not real digital account opening. Correct. And when the world stops and all access to traditional banking, except for auto tellers, is removed, you really find out really how digital you are. So as we look at the change that you expect to happen, what do you see as maybe long-term disruptions as maybe opposed to short-term disruptions that, that may not continue? I, I think when we look at the consumer, I think the question is going to be out there, okay, how many are going to stick with their new habits? What do you think are be the long-term overall disruptions compared to short-term ones? I'm not so sure if there's anything that we're going to go back to on a normal basis unless there's a vaccination for the virus. I'll tell you my personal perspective. I don't think I will go to a concert or a sporting event until they have a vaccine. I cannot imagine being around 20,000 other people in a close surrounding, even if it is an outdoor baseball game. So I think the human psychology has to change. And scientists mostly say you have to do 28 days of a habit change before it becomes a new habit. We're now all working from home. And some people are liking it. Some people detest it. So the banks have to figure out their real estate floor plan. 
Do they need all the real estate they once did? And again, it's not just banking, Jim. It's all of America. Do you need all that real estate you once had? Will some people now say, you know what? I've got enough to live on. I'm going to retire. If you are a millennial who's always wanted to work from home, by and large, is this a tipping point from them to wanting to work from home and only come into the office once every two weeks? So I think this could be a seismic shift throughout. Now, the one thing I think that people will go to more quickly than others is probably eating in restaurants as long as they're social distancing. That is the baby step. But how much are people willing to wanting to go to a conference that you put on and we at CBA put on that have a thousand people and travel to Las Vegas? I'm not so sure about that just yet. So I think it's still too early to determine what the great impact has been. I think we're at least a month, month and a half away to see what really settles. And there's no playbook. I mean, we we saw today, I think in, in your uh, CBA uh, short brief that you know, we have a situation where one large financial institution is saying they're going to extend the ability for people to work at home. I'm not going to say indefinitely, but as long as they want, while another one is saying, you know, we want to bring some of our people back, but we're going to provide social distancing. So there's not really a playbook as how you handle with that, but there's not a playbook for anything. For lack of a better term, the earth stopped moving about two months ago, different times at different places. But I think what we're seeing is there's no playbook for how to distribute funds to the masses. I mean, we've seen that between the, the PPP small business loans and even the, uh, the COVID checks to consumers, we were not sure of how this would all affect. And, we, and, you know, we saw everything from difficulty in disbursement to even the, the policy procedures that were in place with regard to consumer checks as to do you apply it towards uh, overdrafts first or, or do you give the people the consumer access to funds? But overall, how well do you think the banking industry has responded to the challenge of serving consumers and small businesses during this crisis? Phenomenal. Look, I was, as you mentioned earlier, I was around in 2008, and that was a dog-eat-dog period. Banks all trying to outdo each other, not sharing information with each other. To start up a program where you did 14 years' worth of loans in 12 days, that was phenomenal. And I'm talking about the payment protection program. It was amazing how small banks, regional banks, large banks, literally, literally, Jim, worked around the clock in three eight-hour shifts to change their processes, their operations, so over a million loans could be made in a short period of time by small businesses. That was just spectacular. I've never been more proud to represent the banking industry than I have been in the last four weeks. We were reaching out and we bankers were reaching out to customers to modify loans, whether that's an auto loan, education loan, or a mortgage to make sure they felt safe and secure. It has just been a phenomenal effort across the street. What is more gratifying than that is when we have our committee calls within the law through not uh, going past antitrust regulations, they're sharing information with each other. They're calling each other and say, hey, I saw you got this amount of loans through the e-trans system at SBA. How did you do that? How did you clean your ATM machines? How did you clean and sterilize your branch? How did you communicate with your membership on certain items? So time and time again, we've called on bankers to help each other out. Now, one time have I heard somebody say, oh, I can't tell them that. That might hurt my competitive advantage. 
So it's just been spectacular to watch. Yeah, and as an industry, the first thing you talked about was trust. And it really is going to be one of those items that how well an organization does for their customer base, small business and consumer, is really going to determine what kind of trust these organizations have coming out of this. Because when everything's going smoothly, trust is pretty much assumed. When things get tough, like they are right now, and a consumer may not have the money in the bank to make the next payment for food, may not have the ability to cash a check as easily as others, you really are going to be, you're going to be known for how well you stand behind your customer during these times of crisis. But obviously, not everything has gone as smoothly as banks were disrupted in many ways due to the crisis. How do you think the banking industry could maybe have done better, in your opinion? Well, first off, we're in a crisis, and we're not even out of the crisis yet. I wish there would have been better communication between, say, Congress and banks starting up a program because the easiest thing to do is blame banks for your loan not being granted. But we ran out of money. There's only so much money Congress is going to send the bank to do these payment protection programs. And if we could Monday morning quarterback this, and we will one day, but not today, it would have been easier just to send money directly. So I wish we could have had a better communication with our small business people. We were getting the new rules as applications were being underwritten. But again, it's a crisis. And the fact that we had to go to small business, which is an entity that usually does $20 billion of loans over an entire year, Jim, an entire year, they went from $20 billion to $350 billion. That was just uh, unfortunate. It had to be that one agency. But again, I'm just so proud of what we have done. I do believe at the beginning we're a little paranoid, rightfully so, of public perception of closing branches. As you know, in the banking industry, no bank wants to be first out of the gate and no bank wants to be last. Maybe we should have moved a little more quickly on closing branches to make sure our employees were healthy. But we weren't sure where the virus was just yet. But most branches, uh, if they have a drive through component, we have the drive throughs open. We did have to shut down some branches to protect the health of the customer and the bank employee. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because you look at this and, again, it gets back down to how prepared, from a digital perspective, were institutions. I mean, we see big differences between one organization versus another, and the preparedness really showed not only in the ability to shut down branches, but the preparedness in being able to distribute small business loans. Those organizations that already had a, a digital process in place, it was a lot easier to take those loans and disperse those loans than it is for those that didn't. And I think, you know, times of prosperity sometimes cause that. We talk about things we have to do, but until, you know, something like this happens, we don't move forward on some initiatives because the pain isn't there. It's, I, I liken it to the whole situation where you can go to the doctor and you can keep on telling you to lose weight, but until you get that prognosis that, oh, by the way, you may die, you may not move on that that recommendation. And I think, you know, the organizations, I think overall have done very well, but I, I think also there's a big wake-up call for those organizations that have either meant to or didn't mean to drag their feet with regard to moving forward on a digital basis. What opportunities do you see for all financial institutions post-COVID? In other words, there are some eye-openers during this process, but I think there's opportunities, I think, aren't there? Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head on the digital side. We've had to ask our banks to increase the level of uh, acceptance, if you will, on a check amount. Most institutions would have a maximum of $1,000 
that you could do remote deposit capture. Then we found out all the stimulus checks were coming out, and the average would be somewhere around 2000 And some people were getting checks up to $3,500, $4,000, depending on how many kids you had and married and so forth. So our banks had to move quickly to increase the loan limit. But also something, Jim, I did not know is the high fraud rate there is in the industry on checks dispersed by the United States Treasury. That check, more than any others, are prone to fraudulent activities. So we had to get with the United States Treasury and open up a website to make sure our banks understood how to make sure one was authentic. And so that's been a true blessing for us. But once we get to the other side of the virus and more people do digital items, just simple things like that, increasing the limit of remote deposit capture limits, lowering the fraud costs, I think that's going to be something the banks need to address right up front. You know, it's interesting because I was thinking about the stimulus checks and you had three different scenarios. You had a scenario where a person had funds directly deposited. And and as we saw, some institutions hadn't really looked at their policies with regard to does it go first towards coverage of an old draft that in a normal circumstance, that's totally sensible. But in this, it didn't look so good. Um, And and organizations adjusted. If you uh, had a, uh, a check delivered to your house, and you did what the financial institutions wanted you to from a digital perspective. You take a picture of it and try to deposit it. But as you said, in some cases, it was over limit. In other cases, you have a longer hold than you would have had if you had gone in and just taken a paper check and tried to cash it. We never expect these scenarios to take place, but it, it's a continuous challenge, I would imagine, for the banking industry to continually be adjusting when you know your teams are all remote. Uh, I, I think people underestimate the difficulty in doing everything differently between policies and procedures and legal and bringing people into calls that you, you may not even be sure of where they are um, at the time of the call. So Yeah, and I'll add something to that. What about those people who do not have a checking account? All right. Can they go to a bank that is not their bank? So they don't have one. And many of our banks had not cashed treasury checks submitted by non-customers. Now, all of our banks that I know of are now doing that. We're accepting that. But there are a lot of unbanked and underbanked people who would go to Walmart or check cashing services or, God forbid, a payday lender to get their checks cashed minus a fee. So we had to go through that as well. But you also said something, again, correctly. The banking industry and their employees, over one million employees, are not immune to the virus. They also have to stay at home and work, take care of their kids because the daycare center or the school is closed down as well. So it has been a major hurdle to get people to come in and remain healthy while taking care of their family needs as well. So we are seeing shifts overall. Obviously, the the largest banks handled a lion's share of the CBA loan, but it's not like the small banks weren't able to participate as well. But we've seen, and partially because of the digital transformation of the largest organizations, that there's been a shift of market share to the largest financial institutions. And this could continue or even increase as, let's call them the mid-sized organizations, realize the cost of transformation and the need for technology upgrades to stay current in a post-COVID world. Is this a good, a bad thing, or how do we uh, evaluate whether or not the consumer is actually being served better by this consolidation that's occurring? What I've always said, a person born today can have the same telephone number and the same bank from birth to death. You no longer have to walk into a branch to open a checking account. Your same telephone number can now be portal 
everywhere you go in this country or even overseas. I had been saying if you wanted to get a deal done, an M&A activity done, you should have that happen, the application filed by April 15th in case President Trump loses and the regulators change people. Right now, you got Joseph Odding at the OCC, Yellen McWilliams at the FDIC, people who actually understand banking. And most of the applications have been going through in about six months, truest being the largest one. Right. So if you didn't get it done by then and Donald Trump loses, I wasn't sure if you're going to get it done because the change with Adi and maybe McWilliams goes a little longer at the FDIC. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. Will smaller banks consolidate? Will there be buyers for smaller banks or regional banks? I don't know. But yes, you're right. The larger banks are getting more deposit and market share. We see that continuing because they are spending each of the top five over $10 billion per year in technology. Most banks in this country do not have $10 billion in assets. So as you see the continuing drive to digital, I do believe the larger banks have an advantage because of their investment in the technology. And the good news is a lot of the the solution providers in the financial services industry have been working together to try to make it so that small organizations can do a lot of the things that the bigger organizations can. And, And we've seen in our research that the very smallest organizations are doing pretty well as well because they can move like a pickup truck as opposed to a semi. But um, certainly the industry is going to change. It is costly business. It got costly after the 2008 financial crisis with regard to compliance and regulatory uh, costs, where there really isn't a difference between a small bank and a large bank as far as what you have to put forward. But I think we're also going to see, um, you talk about the technology investment the investment of people. I mean, we see what the best and brightest of financial institutions are spending towards R&D and digital talent. That talent's getting more expensive because the demand for it is skyrocketing. We're going to have a little tailback now, you know, right immediately post-COVID. But as people start to see where their gaps are, there's going to be a talent gap. And that's tough also for the the mid-majors, let's call it that, organizations below number 100 on the asset sides to be able to do what's needed. And now, doing what's needed immediately as opposed to a five-year plan, for instance. So, you know, we talk about the banking industry in the traditional sense, but we've experienced a, a rather long stretch of prosperity before COVID. There was also a, an increase in expansion of non-traditional players providing banking services. What do you see as the future role of big tech and fintech firms going forward? About 10 years ago, I went out to Silicon Valley to hear what all was going on. I kept on hearing Silicon Valley and fintechs were about to take down the banks because that's where sexy banking occurred. People sitting at their computer, easy to read applications and loans and everything else. And on my departure, I stopped by and I saw a guy by the name of Ryan McInerney. He's at Visa. And I said, Ryan, I don't get fintech here. He used to be at Chase, so he had a good perspective of retail banking plus technology. And I said, Ryan, I don't get this. I don't think 90% of these so-called fintechs are going to make it. They don't have the funding. They've never seen a downturn in the economy. They don't have proper underwriting. And he just looked at me and said, Richard, you've been in the Beltway too long. You have no idea what you're talking about. The fact of the matter is, Richard, Not 90% won't make it, 99% won't make it. But the 1% that make it will have a dramatic influence on banking as we know it. Now, I just don't know who that 1% is still today. And we've always said in a downturn, warts would be exposed in the fintech industry because there are lack of underwriting experience. So here we are. 
This is certainly a downturn in the economy, and we're going to see if my prediction is correct, that warts will be exposed, and who will rise to the top uh, of Silicon Valley? Who's left? Now, over the last five years, we've seen more of a partnership among the banks and the fintechs and still have a motto a motto type battle. So I don't know who's going to come out on top, but we're going to test this theory right now. What fintech company can survive a downturn in the economy? So do you see maybe the gap between traditional banking and fintech actually having to be actually compressed because of COVID-19, where because financial institutions, traditional financial institutions really had to get their digital transformation act together, as well as focusing even more broadly on the customer experience, which is really the forte of the fintechs and the partnerships going on. Do you see this gap probably narrowing between the differences between the two different types of financial institutions? Yes, because I see some of our banks acting like a fintech. The top five, definitely. Capital One. Capital One is more of a credit card company plus fintech than it is a bank. And we're going to see how they come out on the other side of this as well. I think you're seeing banks becoming more, much more nimble when it comes to their digital platform, which is going to serve everyone well. Go back to Jamie Dimon's comment, I guess about a year ago. Uh, he said he was embarrassed that they did not develop fintech and had to rely on other people. And that's when he basically said, we're going to start inventing our own fintech within the bank. So I think that was a monumental shift there as well. Uh, Brian Monahan at Bank of America said not too long ago, they can now do a small business loan in seconds. But the customer said that was too quick. So now instead of doing it in seconds, they do it in two days versus they used to do it in 20 days. Right. So I think those were major points in the evolution of fintech plus banking that occurred. So maybe this will put you on the spot a bit, but if you look three years into the future, what do you see as being the change in the number of financial institutions that'll be in the marketplace? I mean, everybody globally thinks that we're over overbanked and, and overbranched, but the consumer seems happy. But right now, there's a lot of things that have changed and, and sped up the process maybe. What do you maybe see as the, the percentage change that may happen in the next three years? So we've been losing about 250 banks per year for the last 10 years, roughly. In the old days before that, you would lose 250, but you'd have 250 new charters. Right. They don't have those charters growing like they once did. Oh, that's a little better. The last year, I think we had a grand whopping of 10 last year. So I still think we're going to lose at least 250. It also depends how long does the interest rate remain this low. I will tell you over the last two years, the most disappointing action I've seen in Washington has come out of the Federal Reserve. They started increasing interest rates, fine. Our banks adjusted it to it. Many of our banks then went to a digital platform, online platform for deposits. And then almost immediately they reversed course and lowered interest rates. So I, I wish they had never increased interest rates until they were absolutely positively without any doubt whatsoever sure that interest rates would go north and north only even wait longer before you started going north. So that hurt a lot of expansion plans by our banks. I think the coronavirus will put a hamper, believe it or not, on the number of consolidation uh, M&A activity. Because if you're a president of a bank and your bank portfolio has go down, call it 25, 30%, I don't think you're going to sell anytime soon. But at the same time, you better be looking out for the November election. I guess if you're trying to retire, it's better to take what you got now, then wait later and 
not know what's going to happen. But look, I think we're in the 3000 range area, uh, you know, call it five, six years from now. Yes, that's a significant change. And so we talked about branches in and out of this conversation since the beginning. So getting a little bit more granular with the jump in digital banking capabilities and in the jump in digital banking usage by the consumer, could you see an idea of what you think the change in number of branches may be in the U.S. during the three-year period? Yeah, well, add on top of that expense reduction. So you have the move towards digital and you have the expense reduction that needs to happen. Right. So I think it's the perfect storm to do it over the next several years. I know many people in the industry thought banks were moving much too slow, but keep in mind, and people miss this, you had CRA, Community Reinvestment Act activities, where it's very hard to close branches in LMI areas, low to moderate income areas. And we were basically pressured by Congress and by the regulators not to close branches. And oh, by the way, uh, you have new suburban areas uh, where we wanted to open branches. And unless we served, overserved LMI areas, we couldn't open in higher affluent areas. So it was a double whammy. That's why I'm so glad to see that we're on the way to modernizing the Community Reinvestment Act. But yeah, uh, you have to have a reduction in branches upon us. And I don't think the customer will see that much of a difference. Now, it is important that we have a strong and vibrant community bank system. Now, we at CBA don't represent the community banks, but we need them to be forceful and active and solvent in areas that we may not cover. Now, we can cover them through digital, but that's what our community bank is for, to be in the communities, not to be in the urban centers where a lot of our banks are, although we do serve a lot of the rural areas as well. So we need a A to Z from a $100 million bank to the two to almost $3 trillion banks all serving and being prosperous. Boy, I'll tell you what, that's CRA. When I visited the White House uh, during the Obama administration, the people I worked with, they said, you know, what is the biggest change that's needed in the banking industry from a regulatory standpoint? I said, you know, it seems to be a modest request, and it seems to be something that uh, wouldn't be hard, but we just can't get rid of the CRA, which its purpose had outlived its need because, you know, the low and moderate income areas traditionally were the ones to embrace digital and do more digital transactions than any other segment. I used to work in a lot of these branches in Cleveland back in my banking day, and those branches are huge and empty. Now, they have a lot of ATMs. And they have open lobbies because the, the banks have to stay open. But from a real estate standpoint, the government really missed the ability to uh, completely adjust the CRA. And, and the impact overall, as you said, not only impacted the ability to close branches that were completely non-functional, but for those organizations to maybe reinvest in the community in ways that are different. Maybe they're work centers, maybe they're community centers, but also the expansion into areas that needed branches. It's a uh, it's one of those crazy things that you go, you know, I, I don't know why this has been so difficult. Politically speaking, it's not good. It doesn't give a good optic, even though we know the realities of the situation. But it, it's one of those regulations that you thought would have gone away decades ago. But uh, We're all in on serving our communities. Our banks spend about $500 billion per year serving the communities. I think with this new reform by the OCC and FDIC, banks will actually spend more money on community development. If you have a good community, you have a great country, you have a great banking system, they all go together. This bill 
act was written during the Fonzie, Richie Cunningham days of the 70s. <laughs> Never yeah. been updated. So it's basically being in the rotary phone era when we're in the iPhone era. And it, it's just a shame that we have not modernized this act since the 70s. Now, look, I will tell you, I was embarrassed when I came to CBA that when a bank invests a dollar into a program, they're not sure it counts for CRA credit until after the examination takes place. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand why hasn't CBA or the banking industry or regulators provided a list of items that are eligible for funding and meet their criteria. Community groups would love to know what counts and what doesn't count. They will start lobbying banks to invest in their programs. We, on the other side, would not have to guess if we're investing correctly or not. It's all fully transparent. So that's one thing I think that will be in the final rule that comes out in about 50 days. It's also been used as a political weapon by community groups with the regulators, which was not the intent of CRA. So if nothing else, if we can bring in transparency, every bank should know how much they have to spend. So when they go into an examination, everybody should know how they're going to do. And it's not a subjective analysis by the examiner of the day. And by the way, Six months later, we may have a new examiner from the OCC who may have a different opinion whether things should count or not. Can you imagine Jim taking a test and not knowing the questions or the substance of the test? That's basically what CRA is for us. You're exactly right. And as you said, the 70s, I mean, this, this regulation was established when people were still in line cashing their government checks. It was before direct deposit. And again, it's terrible optics to stop CRA, but it's not to stop investment in communities. It's to stop the need to keep real estate open when the reality is it's not needed and not used. But as you said, if you bring more clarity, more transparency to what classifies as investment into the right communities, then you you help not only the banking industry, but certainly help the community groups that need to know, does my organization qualify? Transparency is never a bad thing. It's always going to work on the behalf of uh, both the industry and, and the consumer. But um, so finally, Richard, what do you believe will be uh, your and the CBA's biggest role in the next 12 months? Well, it'll still be navigating the regulatory environment uh, for our CBA membership and also navigating the new environment of banking. So, again, it'll be a dual purpose. Uh, making sure we convene people together to talk about what we're now calling the other side of banking. Every few decades, every industry gets the opportunity to remake itself. And I think that's where banking and society of a whole will be. So we're going to be a conduit for everyone to bring in their best thoughts and also to continue to educate Congress about what the banking industry is going through. Uh, unfortunately, in Congress, you don't have a, many members of Congress who are an expert in any one field. And I understand that. That's what America is about. But as long as we can continue to advocate on behalf of retail banking, what is really transpiring uh, out outside the Beltway, I think that membership is best served. Richard, thanks for coming on the show. And, and it's always fun to talk to you because, I, I, you know, I often refer to the fact that, you know, sometimes regulators, policymakers, heads of community groups just don't stay in touch. You definitely do. I, I've, from the beginning, loved the fact that your Twitter handle is Cajun Banker. <laughs> right. I think it, it says a lot. Number one, 
I know you're one of the first ones on Twitter. You're, you're at the very beginning of that platform and you've been active in it. You utilize it regularly, but it also shows you, you don't forget your roots. So uh, hopefully, um, I doubt it's going to happen. It, it may be moved to spring, but hopefully we can see a college football season because uh, that does bring people together. But it's one of those things that you said, I'm not too sure if I want to sit in a stadium. I certainly don't want to sit in an indoor arena. It, it's all going to be staged, but uh, we'll get through this. We've gotten through a lot in the past, but I think the one thing it has taught us that we can't always be sure what the future will bring. But thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, Jim, and just remember, we're one day closer to the other side. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. It was great to have Richard Hunt on the show today as president and CEO of the Consumer Bankers Association. You know, while he represents the largest financial institutions, he really represents the entire industry in Washington. He comes from a lobbying background, and I think, you know, he continually has to challenge and be challenged by the interrelationships between the banking industry and Washington and the need to serve on behalf of the consumer and small businesses. Um, He's had the role for quite some time. This is his, I would say, second major crisis he's gone through, the first one being the financial crisis of 2008. But it was great getting together with him and, and just finding out what is the thought of the industry from the perspective of Washington and what do we have to do going forward. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, just rated a top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. These ratings are extremely important as we try to widen our distribution of the Banking Transform podcast. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research that we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.